Father, thank you for your kindness to us and your Son, and for meeting us already this morning, this first Sunday in Advent. Thank you for the good word that we've heard, and for drawing our hearts together in praise and in confession and in renewing, Lord, a sense of who we are in light of the glory of, of who you are. And Lord, as we enter into these three weeks together in this short uh, uh, series, I pray, God, that you will do again what, what we cannot fashion or form or fabricate, that, God, you would take your word and that you would take the truths that you have taught to your church by your spirit and open them up into our hearts and our minds and let our affections and our minds be drawn together around uh, this subject matter, Lord, which is you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to see you all. I hope you're doing well post-prandial um, Thanksgiving, whatever that is. But um, yes. All right, we're doing we're three weeks together um, for uh, uh, in this season of Advent, and th- this has become, I think, a regular pattern for me to do something in a for a three-week series in Advent. And I thought, if it's okay with you all, actually, it's the the ship's out of the port, so we can't change it. <laughs> my, my, but, um, but that we reflect a little bit on, on the Trinity together. That is not really a very sexy topic. I mean, I realized that. I thought about renaming, you know, Gil Cracky is really good at titles, and I, I thought about naming this something like, you know, Your Sex Life in the Trinity, or something like that, <laughs> just to get kind of a bait and switch, just to get people in, and then we'll, it's not what we're going to talk about at all. Um, I'm reading a book uh, right now um, called A Sense of Style by Steven Pinker. He's a, um, a, a cognitive scientist, I think, teaches at one of these Ivy League schools, and he's written a book on language and writing. It's actually quite fascinating. Um, and uh, in there, he gives a challenge um, to academic-type people, teachers. Well, I guess that's me. And he says, let me warn you against a certain pattern that I'm noticing that teachers fall into. And that is, they begin a paper or a lesson or an article by declaiming that the subject matter that they're engaging is really complex. Right? I'm going to give you a lecture on quantum physics, and this is a really, really difficult subject. I'm going to give you a lecture on organic chemistry, and this is a really, really complicated subject. He says, most intelligent people who are listening to you recognize that most subjects worthy of study are probably complicated, right? (laughs) So you don't need to tell people that this is complex, because they know that if it's worth talking about and worth writing about, then it's probably complex. So with all due um, respect, Mr. Pinker, I'll I'll say this morning that the subject matter that we're about to engage is complex, right? Uh, We're talking here about Trinity, um, and the Trinity, as it relates to the way in which two things, the way in which the Trinity shapes how we read the Bible and how the Trinity shapes the way in which we pray. Um, I, we will not be able to talk about all of these things, but I, I do want to reflect with you for these next three weeks, and I'm not really sure what the scope of this series will turn into. We will, we will hop on this wave and see where it goes. Um, but I wanted to reflect on the Trinity during the season of Advent because I thought it was apropos to do so for several reasons, if you don't mind me listing some of these out. Here we are in the season of Advent, which from a church calendrical standpoint, and I'm still a kind of rookie Episcopalian, um, but from a church calendrical standpoint, Advent is the beginning of the new year. So I guess there's a sense in which we should put Happy New Year to you, right? 
Um, this is the beginning of the church's life together. I don't know, some of you, you know, are cradle Episcopalians or maybe cradle Presbyterians, and when it comes to the church calendar, that's not a new thing for you. For others of you, that you know, I, I, you're like me, you've come into this probably a little bit later in life. I have found the church calendar to be, and I'll use this in a, in a more pedestrian way, I don't mean this in a loaded theological way, but I have found the church calendar to be a means of grace. And the reason why I found that to be so is it, it taps into what I think are the important rhythms and seasons of our lives uh, before the Lord and in covenant community together as, as Christ's church. What do I mean by that? I mean we get to begin again every year. We come again to Advent and we reorient ourselves, I'm going to come back to this, but we, re- we reorient ourselves once again to what's fundamental, what's central to our Christian faith, and then we begin to move through this plotted sequence all the way to Easter. Pentecost, we have Epiphany, and then Pentecost, and then, we, then we move into Lent, and then we move into Holy Week, and then we move into Easter, and we have that kind of plotted movement that draws us along in the storyline of our Savior, which teaches us, because we are implotted people. We're people who are characters in a large story. Now, the problem of modernity is we've tended to, to treat our own personal stories as if that is the narrative of the world, right? I mean, well, you want to know what the story of the world is? The story of the world is my story. Right? That's the story of the world. And what the, the seasons of the church, I think, help us do is to recognize that our story actually gets wrapped up even in our own linear movements as we go into Advent and the Christmas and the New Year, in our own linear movements that we cannot escape. Well, I don't know if you feel this way, but time is tyrannical, isn't it? I mean, it just doesn't stop for anybody. I think people write poems of this kind of thing. St. Augustine was famous for saying, if some, I know what time is, but when someone asks me to define it, then I can't do that. Right? I mean, time is um, uh, tyrannical in its forward movement. We can't help it. We're going somewhere. And the church calendar helps me see in this forward movement of my life that there's a cyclical pattern here of going back again and again and returning to the beginning, going to the end, and returning to the beginning again. I know it's almost achieved bumper sticker status, I realize that. But T.S. Eliot's famous line um, where he states, at the end of all of our journeyings, we will come to the end and recognize that we're actually at the beginning and know that place for the first time. That's really, I think, what the church calendar helps us to see, is we come to the beginning, and we know it again for the first time. I, I, I deal with this with my kids, right? Um, uh, you know, we do our little Bible time whenever we do it, and we have a little time together, and they're like, heard that story, done that, been there. Right? <laughs> but we, we hear this sort of all the time. Already know that story, let's move on to new territory, please, right? And it's like, you know, this is, this is the challenge, isn't it? To think about the, the stories that we know and are so familiar with, which I think make preaching and teaching especially challenging with the stories that are so familiar, are really the stories that we need to encounter again and again in a beginning sort of way because our expanse and our parameters of knowledge and also the depths of our heart begin to encounter this in ways that really tap into the very core of what it means to be human and what it means to be in time. 
So I like Advent a lot. I like this season. And um, I didn't realize, I mean, again, this is my, my rookie Episcopalian status, but you know, it, it came to me later, recognizing that both Advent and Lent share something in common. They're both technically seasons of repentance. It's not an inappropriate question, though I guess these things can always be abused, but it's not an inappropriate question to ask, so what are you giving up this year for Advent? Right. Um, or, or maybe even better, what are you taking on uh, this year in Advent? A kind of reflective season of repentance that again draws us back to the beginning and draws us back to recognize again our own location and placement in this grand story that is of God, of Christ, and his redemption. So, all to say, I'm, I'm a big fan of the church calendar. Um, I think it's a real gracious gift to us to think about the ways in which we shape and order our own lives. And to speak about the Trinity during this season, to me, just seems apropos, right? For a couple of reasons. Number one, because we're here at the beginning of Advent, and the beginning of the church year, again, reorienting and reshaping ourselves to that which is fundamental to our existence. And what could be more fundamental to our existence as Christians than reflection on the character and the identity of God? I've said this enough around here to, for you all to have heard this ad nauseum, so forgive me for saying it again. But I, I begin to break out in sweats a little bit, right? When people in the church talk a long time about God without naming that God as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I was going to say this even if Smalley wasn't here, but he is here this morning. Do you notice his pre-sermon prayer every time, right? The name of the one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the proper way of identifying our God, and that's extremely important. Whenever people begin to start reflecting um, in a sort of abstract way on God, 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 I, I need to know very, very soon, who are we talking about? Because this God, and again we're in the season of Advent, has revealed himself in time in a very particular way. And that is the Father who begets the Son and who both together spirate the Spirit. Now I know that's really inflated language, but we're going to talk about that in a second. So coming back to this to the season of Advent, I think Advent is an apropos time to think about the character and the identity of the God who we worship and the God... Um, who shapes the way in which we think and the way in which we pray. That's one. Two. I'm being conscious of time here. Is that right? It's 1020 already? No worries. We're moving on. Number two. Um, the Trinity is the fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith by which all other doctrines are to be understood. I'll say that again. The Trinity is the fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith by which all other doctrines are to be understood. I believe God is triune, right? So we use this language. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, that is significant. And this is something that I think has beginning, is beginning to settle on me in new ways that is opening up some pretty big horizons for me theologically and for the ways in which I read the Bible. That's what I want to talk about. Number one, when you enter into the early church and you hear the language of the early church, the language that we will use in the Nicene Creed next week, right, 
I believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made of one substance with the Father. That kind of language that we use all the time can strike us as rather, I don't know, abstract and obtuse. One God, begotten, not made. You hear that language, and we're used to that language because we say it all the time. But for me, as I hear that language more and more, I realize how central and significant that language is because those church fathers in the 4th century, and that is the century, wrestling with Trinitarian theology, those church fathers, I'll give you some names, good um, pet names if you're looking for any. Athanasius. A dog named Athanasius seems right, frankly. Um, I can just see a Weimaraner named Athanasius. That seems right to me. Sorry. Athanasius. Um, Gregory of Nazianzus. Basil the Great. Gregory of Nyssa. Um, Augustine, a, a generation after them. These great theologians of the fourth century wrestled and struggled with the language to come to terms with the identification of who God is. And what's dawning on me, or at least becoming new to me, again, this new be- these new beginnings, or the again, the again character of our learning about God, is to recognize that this doctrine of the Trinity was not one doctrine among many, but it was the fundamental doctrine that allowed the early church to even be able to see. To even be able to see and understand, number one, who God is, Number two, how to read the Bible. And this is even, I think, a a step beyond that. Number three, how to even conceive of reality. Because the way in which the world is understood and how the world functions becomes viewed through a Trinitarian frame. To use the language of a German theologian, Gerhard Salter, Salter says the doctrine of the Trinity is not a lens that lets us see, bringing things into focus. That's Calvin's famous um, uh, metaphor, a lens that helps us to see. He actually says the doctrine of the Trinity are the retina that allow us to see in the first place. It's fundamental. So this is significant. Why is it significant? Because some of you have doctrines that you really gravitate to. I really love the atonement, right? I really love to reflect on creation. And the significance of a doctrine of creation for what it means to be responsible as a Christian when it comes to the environment and the world around us. Some of you really think about that. Some of you give an enormous amount of thought to, I don't know, the doctrine of the church and what it means for the church to be the church. And I would just posit to you this morning that whatever particular doctrine it is that you're drawn to, that that doctrine does not make sense apart from a Trinitarian frame of reasoning. I like the atonement because I come to terms with the atonement in a Trinitarian frame of understanding, and creation, and redemption, and the list can go on and on. Of all the various theological topics that we can list, they all make sense under the one umbrella of the doctrine of the Trinity. It's significant. Now, I realize that it's very easy to think, right, uh, for me too, to think that the doctrine of the Trinity is just one of those things that frankly... We confess and we believe, but now that we're on the Christian train and I've been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's now talk about things that maybe are a little bit more interesting, right? I mean, that, that, I don't, I don't. the practical implications of the Trinity, pastorally speaking, I do believe are actually um, enormous. Why? Because for all of the language that we think about with the doctrine of the Trinity, and the, the, think about the language of the Nicene Creed, God of God, 
light of light. Isn't that a strange, what a strange phrase. Begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, of one substance with the Father. The technical term there is homoousios. I mean, my students become stunned, I think, at times to find out that in the early church, there was an enormous divide over the one letter, the letter I in English. Homoousios or homoousios. Of the same substance of the Father or of a similar substance to the Father. And huge debates were breaking out over one letter in the Greek alphabet. Our letter I. Isn't that something, right? So this language that seems rather obtuse and abstruse and I don't know, but it seems sort of the things that theologians talk about. Not really the thing that needs to be in my living room per se, except for something on the mantle. But every once in a while we dust off and say, I'm glad I have my grandfather's pocket watch, but it's really not of much use, right? The doctrine of the Trinity actually, with all that verbiage and strange theological language, is there because of, and this is the thing I really want to sit on with you, is there because it reflects the early churches wrestling with the Bible. With the Bible. Trying to come to terms with the Bible's total witness. What does the Bible say about God? How does the Bible identify God from the beginning to the end? Because you all know this as well as I do, right? That every heresy in the life of the church, every heresy that leads people astray, right, from the truth of God's revelation, now, I hope this isn't troubling to you, but um, I'll just toss it out there. Everyone has a Bible verse on its side. Every heresy has Bible verses that they can yank out and say, I believe that Jesus was created and not eternally begotten of the Father because of this. Now, I've mentioned this story to some of you before, so forgive me for mentioning it again, but I remember being a high school student. It might have been a sophomore in high school. I can't remember. I was on an airplane ride from Tampa, Florida to Asheville, North Carolina. I was going to work at a Christian camp in the mountains up there. And so I was on the way up there, and uh, just coming back. Actually, I was flying back from Asheville to Tampa, and, um, you know, I was on the mountaintop with Jesus. You know what that camp, Christian camp experience is like? Well, I was on it, man. This is me, Jesus, and, you know, let the world go wherever it wants to. It's just going to be me and him forever. Uh, and so I'm, I'm riding that camp experience high, which is a wonderful thing, I guess, although the, besides the destructive elements, it's wonderful. Um, <laughs> and, 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 uh, and I'm flying back in, and, and I'm sitting next to a lady, and she's, we, somehow we strive for a conversation. And she's with another group of people. And our religious uh, identity comes into the conversation, and she says, I'm a member of the movement called The Way. And I was like, well, I don't know what that is. Well, tell me more about The Way. She says, well, at the core, we believe that God is one. Okay, I'm with you on that. And we also believe that because God is one, that Jesus Christ is the, God, is the Son of God, but is not God the Son. So we believe he's the Son of God. Right? But we don't believe that he is God the Son. And oh my lands, I just remember thinking, you know, going through, I just didn't have the goods to deal with that. It's like, hmm, that's bad news for me, right? And I can remember being deeply troubled by that. Well, why do I believe that Jesus is both God the Son and the Son of God? I mean, these are the kind of things that we wrestle with. And you know what? She be, you know what she began to do on the plane? She began to quote the Bible, right? Left and right. 
like the verse we heard in church this morning. Does that verse bother the hooey out of you? Only the Father knows, not even the Son. Well, hold on now. What does that mean? Only the Father knows, not the Son too? So the early church wrestled with this kind of thing because they recognized that in certain places of the Bible, the language about the various members of the Godhead sounds subordinationist. It sounds like the Father is of a greater deity than the Son, like the text we heard this morning. Whereas other texts seem to indicate that the Son and the Father share in a divine substance that's indivisible. I mean, think about what Jesus said when they came to arrest him. We are looking for Jesus of Nazareth. This is all very calculated in the Gospels. And what does Jesus say? He says, I am. That's all he says. I am. And do you remember what the scripture says happens when he said that? They all fell backwards. Why? The creative force of the God of the Old Testament, who we call Yahweh, was speaking to them right there, and they fell over when he did it. Think about the other things Jesus does in his humanity. Right? Jesus is on a boat, and he tells the wind and the seas to stop. And what do they do? They listen to him. And Peter's response is the right response there. Uh... I'm a sinful person. Why? Because he recognizes only God has the ability to do that kind of thing. Uh, The 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 moral scenes where where the woman comes in and Jesus forgives her sins and they grumble. Why do they grumble? Because there's only one person who can forgive sins and that is God. So you have some verses in the Bible that seem to indicate that the divine essence of the Father and the Son and the Spirit are shared together, same God, one God, in three persons, and you have other places where the language seems to be rather subordinationist. What do we do with this? So all the strange language that you th- we think is attached to the doctrine of the Trinity, I just want you to know that that is the product of a deep wrestling with the Bible and the Bible's total witness regarding the way in which it describes God and the various persons in that Godhead. Just to give you an idea here, Basil the Great, great 4th century theologian, Basil the Great said um, that we need to make distinctions in the Bible, and this is at the heart of theology. We have to make distinctions in the Bible between things that are similar. And what is the distinction that we need to make? We need to make distinctions in the Bible between the two ways that God names himself. In the Bible, God names himself on the basis of the divine essence, God's godness, God of God, light of light. But there are also namings that take place that relate to the relationality of the persons. And the Son submits himself in the divine plan to the will of the Father. But in his submitting of himself to the will of the Father, that is, a, that is a name of relation, but not a name of substance. I know that gets very tricky, but this kind of language helps us to make sense of the Bible's total witness concerning himself. So what does this have to do with Advent? Well, this is what I think it has to do with Advent. Why this is significant is, one of the doctrines that's central to the Trinity, and it's the one that I want to talk about this week, and maybe next week, and maybe even for three weeks, is the doctrine that claims that the Son of God is eternally generate of the Father. I want to say it again, because we say it in our creed all the time, and now I'd like to maybe help us make some sense of it. 
God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is eternally generate of the Father. That is, the Father is always the Father, and the Son is always the Son, and the Father generates or begots, begets the Son uh, from eternity. I want to talk about that a little bit as it relates to two things. Right. First of all, 17th century. I almost brought the book today to let you see it. Um, I, I have a I don't know if any of you have gone through a Puritan phase. Anybody gone through a phase where you just kind of like the Puritans? Um, you have, right? Yeah. Um, I, I went through a phase, you know, early, early in, in my sort of theological life where I liked reading the Puritans. I liked it because um, I don't know. Is this the best way to put it? They kind of beat you up a little bit. And, and when you're um, when you're young in your faith and in your theology, I don't know what it is, but you kind of like feeling bad about yourself. And the Puritans have a special way of making you feel real badly about yourself. Um, I mean, you know, you read the Puritans, and here they up at four in the morning, and they're praying, and, and they have their homes ordered, and their lives, and you think, you know, I, I feel really, really bad about myself. Um, so I read the Puritans because of their reflections on the Christian life. And then as time goes on, I'm like, well, I'm not sure about how helpful all that is necessarily. So I'm, I've, I moved on to greener pastures. I don't know, Luther, Calvin, something like that. But I've come back to these Puritans, namely one in particular, seven, early 17th century, mid-17th century theologian by the name of John Owen. Um, I, I just, I have a bit of a man crush on John Owen, I'll have to admit it. <laughs> Owen was the chancellor at Christ College in Oxford, if you ever walk into Oxford. Um, have any of you been into Christ Church in Oxford? It's beautiful, beautiful building there. You've seen it, if you've seen Harry Potter, right? Um, because the dining room scenes in Harry Potter are all filmed there in the Great Hall um, in Christ Church. And you can walk in and there's a picture of John Locke. Um, and then right next to John Locke is a picture of John Owen. Owen was the chancellor of the university, a significant figure. He happened to support Cromwell in, in the Civil War and was Cromwell's a chaplain as well. So in time, you know, things didn't go so well for Owen and for that movement. But... Owen was without doubt, I'll just go ahead and put this on, without doubt, the most impressive English-speaking theologian of the, of, the, of the 17th century. No questions asked. Um, so what happens? What, 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 what is he? His writings are voluminous. He's, 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 he's um, I don't know what else to describe him, but just a Himalaya of a thinker. Um, he's got seven-volume commentary on Hebrews. You know, I bought this when I was 18 years old. Seven volumes on Hebrews. I've tried to open that just to find out what verse he's talking about. And I can't figure out what, what even verse he is. It's just, just a very fertile mind. Well, late in Owen's career, um, he writes, a, 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 it's supposed to be a tractate, but it ends up being a 565-page book called The Defense of the Gospel, right? And in this 565-page book, he's defending the gospel against the rise of a heretical movement that had made its way into England. Um, and the movement is called uh, Socinianism. Socinianism, I'm losing my stuff here. Socinianism was a movement that began in Italy, actually during the time of Calvin, because the founder of Socinianism, an Italian theologian named Socinus, had a letter exchanged, an exchange of letters between himself and John Calvin of disagreement. Well, Socinianism took root in Italy, but it moved up into Poland. I've got a Polish colleague, I like to tease him about this. Moved up into Poland, and that's where it took root. It was in Poland. A catechism was written, a non-Trinitarian catechism. This is what Socinianism is. That God is one. 
God is one. And therefore, um, to have multiple persons within this one Godhead is logically indefensible. So God is only one. Um, and so this is the, and a catechism was written on this, called the Rakovian Catechism. And then the Rakovian Catechism makes its way into England, and it's translated by an Oxford don by the name of Mr. John Biddle. How's that for Dickensian name, right? John Biddle, that's really his name. So Biddle translates the Rakovian Catechism, he adds some of it to himself, and he writes a catechism for both adults and for children. And Owen sees this as a great um, threat to the gospel and a great threat to Christian doctrine, but this is what I think we often forget, and I, and I do as well, because we, we can think about these things in abstract ways. But for Owen, the moral consequences of a Unitarian theology were enormous. Nothing less than our salvation is on the line. If Jesus Christ is not fully God, fully man, this comes right out of the Middle Ages and into the early church, if Jesus Christ is not fully God and fully man, then the remission of our sins is a farce. Because he must be fully man to represent us. But he must be fully God to be able to overcome that which needs to be substituted for. And if he's not both, then our salvation is on the line. So for Owen, this is not just a matter of theological um, shop talk. The gospel itself is, is on the line. And that's why he entitles this 565-page demolition derby against Biddle's catechism. He calls it a defense of the gospel. Where there's a section in there in which he um, wrestles with and engages the Old Testament and the ways in which the Old Testament frames a doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. This is the text I want to look at with you this morning, conscious of our time, right? Micah chapter 5. If you have phones or Bibles or whatever, you can look at this. Micah chapter 5. Verse 2. There were three verses that came out of the early church where early church theologians thought that the Bible itself expressed the doctrine that the Son of God was eternally generate of the Father. That means that the Father and the Son share in a divine essence of eternal generation. Um, this is significant. It's why in our creeds we say that Jesus was begotten, not made. We are made. We're creatures. The Son was begotten, not created. That's a, a very, so when it says begotten, not made, there's a, just a truckload of information behind that and thought behind that, those three words there that emphasize that the Son of God was begotten of the divine essence, not made. And why is this important? Do any of you watch Colbert? I know some of you probably can't um, take the, uh, the, the sort of, I don't know, the sarcasm of it. I'd be very interested to see what Colbert turns into on the Letterman show. That would be fascinating. But do any of you watch Colbert? I can only take it in spoonfuls. Um, Colbert has an excellent interview, two of them. YouTube this with Bart Ehrman. Um, Bart Ehrman is this New Testament scholar that teaches at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He's written all, he's a very good writer. Boy, he's an excellent writer. Ehrman has written a book called Misquoting Jesus, which basically says, 
we don't even know what the New Testament is, much less um, what Jesus actually said. Then he has another book that came out on the Son of God, claiming that um, the divinity of Jesus was a creation, was a myth created by the early church. And, and Colbert is a Catholic. And, uh, and so he cares, this stuff matters to Colbert. And so he comes onto the show, and I'll just say, you have to watch this for yourself. I think Colbert takes him around the woodshed and just gives him a spanking on live TV. That's all, the only way I can describe it. Colbert looks at him and he says, Sir, let me ask you this question. What is the son of a duck? If you think you have a duck and then a duck has a son, what actually is that son? And the answer is, of course, a duck, right? So if you have the son of God, right, who is born of God, then what is, and he says, what part of this thing do you not get? Right, he sort of um, Micah 5.2 is one of these texts that wrestles with this, this language here. And or at least the, the church fathers and someone like Owen has wrestled with I want to read it to you, and you, you know it's quoted in Matthew 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, I want to, I'm going to say this language very carefully, from you shall come forth to me one who is to be ruler in Israel. And listen to this language. Whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. And then you go in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, and the New Testament authors quote this as referring to Jesus. I want to talk about the sex for a few minutes and then we'll be done. You, O Bethlehem Ephrata. Two terms, two, um, two appellatives for this city that is Davidic in its origin. David comes from Bethlehem. Ephrata was another term often used to describe this city of Bethlehem. Though you are the least. Now, I've read some commentaries on this who've actually challenged the translation here, the least, and actually prefer the language, the smallest. And I actually think that they have something here linguistically behind them. Though you are the smallest of the tribes of Judah. What does this mean, the smallest? It indicates the character of God. It indicates the character of God that we've seen, frankly, from the beginning of God's election of Israel up into the current moment. And that is God, for some reason, delights in taking small things and making them really big. This is one of those stories we read to our kids just recently where they said, we've heard this already, but, you know, all the sons of Jesse come, you know, marching through, and here comes Elkanah, not him. Here comes the next one, not him, even though these are mighty men. And well, where are the rest of your kids? I don't have any but this shepherd kid who's out there, and he's kind of ruddy, kind of a rough, rough and tumble kid. We'll bring him in. And he's anointed as the king of Israel. The election of Israel. You're the smallest. I mean, this is the language of Deuteronomy, isn't it? Um, you, I didn't choose you because you were special. I didn't choose you because I looked out at all the nations of the world and thought, what a beautiful nation you are. I think I'd like for you to be my wife. I chose you because I chose you. I chose you because I loved you. So here Bethlehem, this small town, this insignificant town, becomes the town from which God will draw a ruler who will bring the peace that was promised in the chapter right before this in Micah chapter 4. Matter of fact, a few verses after this, it says, and he is peace. Such a fascinating way in which the Bible frames that particular sentence. He is shalom. That's his identity. He is peace. 
So there's a promise here about Bethlehem. Just a couple things about that. Number one, isn't it interesting here that it says Bethlehem? What's the center of political and religious power in Judah during this time? Answer, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the center. Jerusalem is Washington, D.C. Bethlehem is Chelsea, right? I mean, I don't know what to say. I mean, it's, it's, it's if you're, no offense. Um, it's Columbiana. It's, it's, you draw, you blink and you're through it. It's, it's, it's not a very impressive place. So what's the significance here that it's from Bethlehem, Ephratah, right? The significance is that God is sidestepping Jerusalem. He's going back to a beginning again at Bethlehem, and he's starting anew with the Davidic line. This is a claim against the religious and the political powers to be in Jerusalem, and a claim that the future peace that God promises is not going to come from the places you expect it. It's going to come from my gracious initiative to begin in this small little village in Bethlehem all over. So from you to me will go forth a ruler, a ruler, a prince. Um, The language here is the language that overlaps with Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father. So the language that we have here in Micah 5, 2, and the language of the Emmanuel that's promised in Isaiah chapter 7, 8, and 9 begin to merge with one another in such a way that the figures on, the, on final analysis really can't be distinguished. It's fascinating to me to look at Matthew's Gospel, this is a side note, to look at Matthew's Gospel and see Matthew chapter 1, a quotation of Isaiah 7, 14, and then in Matthew chapter 2, the quotation of Micah 5, 2. Why? Because Matthew's picking this up. Matthew is making the associations between Isaiah and Micah that I think Micah itself is making as well. So Matthew, by the way, is an incredible reader of the Old Testament. That's a class unto itself. So out of you shall come forth to me a ruler. Now here's the language. Shall go forth from you to me a ruler. But it's as if now the prophet backs up and then says, but I want to tell you the, the real origin." of this coming figure. And listen to the last language here. Whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Well, let me put another trick. you mind if I gloss this to you? Whose origin is from antiquity, from the days of eternity. That's the language here. So from you is going to come forth to me a ruler. So that's a claim about the human character of this ruler that's going to come out of Bethlehem. But then the prophet presses, and and I don't know how to to describe these terms. The term there in the Hebrew is kadem. Another way it's often translated is east. It's, um, I don't know, it's got fog connected to it and smoke. Um, It's Tolkien-like. It's um, going to the land of Mordor. I don't don't know. It it presses into, frankly, mythical kind of language. It's the kind of language that you expect coming from the east. Where we look to the east and all of a sudden on the horizon, this figure from the ancient days begins to appear. But I thought he comes from Bethlehem. He does. But his genuine origin, his first origin, is from of old, even from days of eternity. It's a claim here that the one who comes actually comes from eternity. A critical scholar that I like very much by the name of John, uh, James Mays says here 
I'm paraphrasing him. But he says this term here, whose origins, really relates to the fact of a father or a mother begetting a child. That's the language here. So the origin of this one who would come is one who would come from ancient days, from of old, who actually comes from, to use Trinitarian language, from the Father um, eternally and then enters into the world out of the benevolence and the overwhelming goodness of that eternal shared life. That's where the Trinity becomes so important. God and His eternal life shared in a mutuality of love that needed nothing outside of that eternal communion of love between Father and Son mediated by the Spirit. There was nothing outside of the divine life that needed anything for it to be made full and complete. I mean, you've heard these poems before. I think that some of them are found in some spirituals of of a generation or two ago. That God thought and he thought and he felt lonely so he created the world. That, that's just bogus. I don't know what it's just bogus. God never has felt lonely once because he's full and complete in his own person. And this is the amazing story of redemption that comes out of Micah chapter 5. It's out of the overflow of his beneficence and his love that he determines in his own inner life to move outside of that inner life toward humanity in an act of creation and redemption. Nothing was determined outside on God to make him do that. But it's out of his kindness and his beneficence and his love and his magnanimity that he decides in his own life, in himself, that there's a decision made from eternity past that you're going forth is going to be from me, but it's going to come out of Bethlehem and it's going to be the means by which the world is redeemed. That's why the doctrine of the Trinity, on one level, is so crucial for our spiritual lives and for our salvation. God, out of His mercy and His kindness, not because of any sense of need or deficiency in Himself, but because of the overflow of His love, moves toward us in His Son, who is eternally generate from His own eternal loins, right? And He comes into the world to redeem us and to make us his own because of his love and his kindness. That's it. And that's the story of Advent. That's what we're moving into right now. That's what the O come, O come part is about our, our sense of yearning for him to come again. Why? Because we yearn for that one who can bring peace and shalom. I don't know how you feel um, turning on the news or living in our world. I mean, I don't, have you seen these Buick commercials? They're just brilliant, right? Brilliant commercials. The guy opens the door and comes out, and he's got a black eye, and he says, you know, I saved all this money at Black Friday, you know, hundreds of dollars. In the, I mean, you look at it, and you just go, oh, it's just the, the cacophony of it all. It's just painful. What we need is peace, don't we? What we need is genuine human flourishing, genuine hope. Genuine stability, long-term stability, that all of these things in the world just sort of scratch at the surface, but really they gnaw deep at us to show us our deep and ultimate hunger and desire. And it's God in his own triune life from eternity past who makes a pre-temporal decision for you and for me. That's the story of Advent. When we come to that baby in a manger in due time, that's the story that's there is that God, in His eternal love, lets that love overflow from Himself 
for you and for me in an act of redemption and an act of bringing, bringing shalom. So I'm, we're going to talk about this for a couple more weeks. And if this scared you off and it'll just be the three of us, whoever that is, that's fine. Uh, we'll have a great time. Just me, my mom, and my dad. That's all right. Um, but uh, I, I hope this is some encouragement to you because the doctrine of the Trinity, for me at least, um, is beginning to expand in such a way as to um, encompass so much more uh, that's really on, on the sidewalk level of what it means to be a Christian. You want to ask any questions before we... Go out of this way. Anything you want to fire out? Yes, ma'am. I mean, you know, the the, be, the best of of confessions of faith out of the Reformation that go right back into Catholic Christianity is um, that God is a spirit and does not have a body. Right. Um, now, what that means as it relates to the incarnation is the subject matter of theology. Period. Right. I mean, that's it's a, it's a big one. Um, I'm with John on that, I believe, in the sense that, um, and this is this is where we differ from Eastern Orthodoxy. Now for East, in the Eastern Orthodox frame, and there's a lot of early church support for this, right? so I want to be careful not to just dismiss it out of hand. There's a lot of early church support that part of what it means to be redeemed, in, or not part, but in total, what it means to be redeemed is that we actually be, be, we are made into God-like people. Um, apotheosis is the technical term. Divinization. We're divinized. He became a man so that we might become God. That, that's the language of what... And, um, now, the, the Reformation tradition has resisted that for numerous reasons, and I'm, I'm with the Reformation tradition on this in the sense that for eternity, because I don't believe we become God, I believe that we become fully and genuinely human in eternity, but for eternity, our knowledge of God will always be mediated by the Son. Our, our salvation as it exists now, as a mediated salvation through the Son, that will be the case one million years from now. Right. There'll never come a time where, like, okay, we don't need that anymore. Right. Now we'll just have no. It's, it's all, to my mind, it will always be mediated. The technical term for that was the, is the beatific vision. Right. Whatever that is, right, the vision of God Himself, that will always be mediated through the Son for eternity. So I'm, I'm, I'm I had to talk with John a little bit more about what he means by that, but I think, um, in substance, that there, I, I overlap with him on that. Yeah, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. Um, and, the, and, the, and again, that's that. Th- this is the subject matter of why theologians have jobs, right? Um, because we want to affirm 
the full humanity of Jesus and the limitations that come along with that humanity, like what we heard in this text today, without in any way relinquishing the fact that the full deity of the Son as well, and that he took on something, think John 1, and the Word became flesh. He took on something that he was not, but that doesn't mean necessarily that he relinquished what he was in order to take that on. And that, that, that this is the, the, that's the hypostatic union. But it's the union of, of, the, of the full divinity and the full humanity of the Son in one person. Because Jesus isn't a schizoid. Right? He's not, I'm doing my humanity now, I do my divinity now. He's one person. Um, but that is, that's why in Chalcedon, which was the, the 5th century ecumenical council where they try to come to terms with the issue that you're raising right here. And it's a big debate. I mean, people wrestle with this. Um, that they only use terms of negation to describe the relationship between the humanity and the divinity in the one person. Without confusion, without separation, without division, without conflation. They, they can only say it in negative terms. Because the minute that you start saying what it is, right, that's, it, it, we, we, we run into problems. Um, so we say it in negative terms, without, 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 without. And then just leave the mystery there, because that's a mystery. It's a mystery. Great questions, great questions. Bring those next week, all right? All right? Okay, we'll see you all.